0: I remember Declan kidney shouting in messages saying wally's to go number eight i'm both seven and Dunica six i just kind of stayed at number eight and
1: ignored <laughs> it the red 78 with alan Quillen and
2: neil briggs subscribe to the rugby channel on the otb sports app and turn on your notifications now wednesday night rugby on off the ball
1: with vodafone main sponsor
0: of the irish rugby team we all belong to the team of us here. Welcome along to Wednesday night rugby loads to discuss opening round of the Six Nations now moving into the distant past we have a very nice round two coming our way Ireland France of course the big one on Saturday evening the Scots fresh from their Calcutta Cup winner in Cardiff and England will play Italy on the Sunday very happy to bring in Rory O'Connor of the Irish Independent hey
2: Rory. Hey, Joe. How's it going?
0: And we have teamed you up once again. Such was the success, such was the public demand after your last outing together with Chris Jones, BBC's Rugby Union correspondent. Chris, the people demanded it. The people are getting it. Wow. (laughs) Yes.
1: Dream team. Hi, guys. How's it going? Yeah, great. Why do you follow zero
0: people on Twitter?
1: (laughs) That's a good spot. I didn't know anyone noticed that. Um, uh, It's kind of because... Maybe, at the, you know, when you get in the height of like Brexit or COVID, you're just getting a lot of people that you want to follow for, say, like a rugby reason, then also retweeting stuff that, I don't know, I'm not saying I don't want to hear loads of different views because I obviously do. I just found it kind of a bit more therapeutic just to not follow anyone as antisocial as that sounds. I haven't really thought about it much, so but obviously I've done it.
0: You log on to Twitter, your feed is... Nothing. Maybe just tweets from Chris Jones. I don't know.
1: No, 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 no. Because then, then you can make these lists, can't you? So, I could then do a list and have people on a list that. So I do follow people. It's just a different type of following. Right. If that makes any sense.
0: Interesting. Good for the
1: soul, I would think. Good for no, the soul. I, I need to put. Out I'm, not, I'm not like anti-social. Don't want to hear people's views. Yeah, come at me. Say what you like.
0: Yeah, I think the truth here, Rory, is he's an incredibly arrogant man. He's not interested oh. in the <laughs> views of others. <laughs> It sounds like a lovely life. It does, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to, I, a, my my father lead. To say. <laughs> so we have talked a lot about Ireland and we will get to Ireland, but we have done an hour with Brian O'Driscoll in studio yesterday. There was Liam Toland and Jerry Thornley on Monday. Alan Quinlan's been on the AM show. Matt Williams on the AM show. We had Darren Cave and Fiona Hayes on the Sunday show. So let's just uh, start in a different place and start with England. And Chris, that was uh, the thinking in part and getting you on. So we talked with Rory late last year about this being a very interesting Six Nations campaign for Eddie Jones. It's just become a whole lot more interesting, I would say. Uh, How much criticism is he on the receiving end of over there?
1: I think a reasonable amount, but I wouldn't say it's been an hysterical amount of criticism. I think it's been the criticism any coach would get when the Grand Slam's gone on day one, when the Grand Slam's gone for a successive year, and when your side's lost the opener for the third year in a row you know eddie jones has he, since that kind of golden run in 16 and 17 his record has been really up and down you know um, 18 was a flop of a six nations 21 was a flop of a six nations 19 was middling 20 was was okay and they won the whole thing so great but they'd lost on the opening night the slam was gone they relied on a losing bonus point and they won it on points difference 21 as we as we know um didn't go so well then he's had some great autumns, put Australia to the sword plenty, that amazing World Cup semi-final against New Zealand, that tactical masterclass against South Africa last time out. But then just when you think, right, is this the year that England really start to you know, put another Six Nations trophy back in the cabinet? It's gone on the opening day. And yeah, he's had injuries. And when you lose Farrell, you lose Laws. um And the other players that are out, that's a big blow. But he took some gambles with that team selection. You know, he didn't pick a ball carrier in the back line in the team or really on the bench. And the one guy who could maybe carry through traffic, Jack Knoll, didn't get on for 82 minutes. The Smith-Ford substitution has been under the spotlight. I think that's one of those that can go either way. If that comes through, then that makes total sense. 78 cap veteran coming on on the hour mark in the Murrayfield wet. Yeah, but certainly a few of his calls have been under scrutiny, which, which you would expect, um, you know, for a, for a rugby side like England.
0: I agree with you on the Marcus Smith substitution for instance like I know Clive Woodward in his column in the Mail went to town on Jones for that substitution but I do agree that can go either way and there is a logic in a more experienced head being brought on to see out the game I suppose what surprised me and would have disappointed me most from an English point of view is that I listened to you and Matt Dawson interviewing Eddie Jones a couple of weeks ago in advance of this tournament, and the way he was talking about the trends in the game and the types of players he was bringing in suggested we would see running rugby, attacking rugby, expansive rugby, and we saw anything but, which really Mm -hmm. made me question what Jones has been working on over the last couple of weeks, unless he was just trying to rope-a-dope everyone, you and Matt Dawson included.
1: Well, he's not adverse to doing that. You know, he's not adverse to saying something and doing something different. But I did I did believe him when he, you know, he, he, he's he got, he takes such a kind of forensic interest in, in rugby all over the world. So he's always looking at the way the game is refed and the way um, the game is, is going in terms of attacking. And, you know, if there is, if England do lose the game at the breakdown, he'll come up with a theory and a reason why. I think a lot of, Um, his tactics were preordained on the weekend because he was spooked by the Murrayfield weather. I don't know if two years ago when it was storm, whatever it was. And that was a monsoon. Those were unplayable conditions. Maybe he thought it was going to be similar, but actually it cleared up just before kickoff. And, Mm. and England, England played a fair bit of rugby around the tens, which, you know, it's all well and good. Then when they did have the odd opportunity, they couldn't execute. And I've just been surprised by the chat out of the England camp this, this last few days, which has been, oh, we dominated possession and territory. Great. What does that mean? Mm. What, what does that mean in Test Rugby? The All Blacks rarely dominate possession and territory. They do what Scotland did, which is when you do get a chance 40 meters out, you you take your, you take your one shot kill. And you score seven points and you say to the team who's been banging away for half an hour, well, that was all well and good. We just did it in seven seconds, which is what Scotland did with the Ben White try. So I was surprised at at hearing that because, you know, that's the difference between a good team and a great team or a good team and a bad team. Turning possession and territory, turning opportunity and just saying things like, oh, we just need to execute. But execution's kind of been England's issue for a while. This time last year, Calcutta Cup, you know, they're kicking away overlaps because they had some success grubbering through a lot a couple of championships ago. But that maybe is the consequence of not having a carrier in your back line. It means that you're just going to try and turn the opposition around and you're not going to be comfortable setting it up, going through traffic or whatever. So it's, it's a it's a complicated one with England because he's picked a certain side, which I think was done to, to kick the ball and squeeze Scotland. And they just weren't able to got close, played well in a lot of facets of the game but then lost their heads in the final quarter. And for for an England side, that is a bit of a recurring theme, which I think will
2: concern England fans. Rory, thoughts on England and Jones? Yeah, there's a, few, like, a lot going on with England at the moment. One thing, just listening to Chris there, struck me is that, um, I've been thinking about this a little bit, that Joe Schmidt used to get obsessed by the weather as well. And I wonder if Southern Hemisphere coaches coming up here get a little a bit obsessed by the weather and when things you know when the forecast is bad they they react quite strongly to it and, and maybe don't trust the northern hemisphere players to have the skill set to go out and play in rough weather whereas Andy Farrell and Gregor Townsend who both uh, grew up in northern hemisphere conditions and played you know their entire lives through it were more trusting of their pl- players to execute um more attacking game plans and not as kind of uh, you know, not go into their shells as much. I mean, Eddie Jones picked a team based on, you know, that looked like it was a team picked on a weather forecast on Sunday, which is, you know, at, at this stage of your development, you should be able to go and play even, you know, obviously you make some allowances for it, but you don't want, like, the idea that you don't want the ball at all, if you're supposed to be going down the road of a more attacking game plan, you don't just change that because the, the, the conditions are going to be bad. You've got to still be able to play, you know. We, we still, there are examples either in the Southern Hemisphere in New Zealand or more recently up here of teams being able to play through the weather. So I just wonder whether having a Southern Hemisphere coach, although it gives you some great insight sometimes, some you know, can backfire. On the whole, you know, they, I, I watched the England Scotland game first in a kind of crowded place. So I didn't get a great sense of it. So I watched it back again a couple of days later and I was surprised by how low quality it was. I thought you know compared to um France's performance compared to Ireland's performance on both sides, there was an awful lot of mistakes. And England are just guilty of being a really muddled team um, throughout that second half, making bad decisions, making bad errors against a very good Scottish team who were on the up. But, you know, you would expect this English team, even with all their changes and all of their, um, you know, the, the, the issues that Chris has outlined already, to be better in that scenario it was almost reminiscent of the 2015 World Cup game against Wales, where they were in a commanding position and just went went to pieces, of, you know, in front of their home audience on the biggest stage. You know, the Robshaw moment is the the one, you know, uh, leading example of that. But the that game, they they, you know, with Harry kept making bad decisions and bad errors and and handed it back to them. And at this stage of Eddie, Eddie Jones' time in charge, they really should be past all of that. You go back to. All of the distract, the kind of the, the potential distractions off field. Eddie Jones writing a book about leadership, where he criticises Maru Otoje's captaincy credentials. When Otoje's is clearly his best player and is the most obvious captain that I can see from the outside in that squad, and yet he's, you know, he's he's basically backed himself into a corner where he can't pick him because he he wrote a book and and, and, and mentioned it in it. He's tried to backtrack since, but like, what's he doing writing a book? At the, you know, and, and talking about current players in the middle of it all. There's just so much going on with England and so much going on with Eddie Jones that. It's fine once you're winning, but when it's, once it starts going wrong, you know you go back to that own slot piece a couple of months ago and all the, 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 the churn of backroom team and you know the, the altercations with, with staff and not letting John Mitchell go see his son play cricket, for, you know like, there's just the mad stuff that's going on behind the scenes. Again, fine if you're winning, but as soon as things start going wrong, you can't imagine it's an easy place to be right now, and you wonder how long Jones can sustain it all.
0: Yeah. On what he said about Itoje, just in case anybody missed that, I might be wrong, but I'm not sure Marrow is a future England captain. He's going to be one of the great players, but Marrow is very inward looking. He drives himself rather than anyone else. And I think he sent him to acting classes. We've sent Marrow to acting classes, which is having a beneficial effect. He speaks more influentially now, and I'm hopeful he can develop more communication and leadership skills. Acting brings Marrow out of himself. How has all this gone down with Maro Otoje, I wonder, Chris?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. What you will not get, really, is England players upsetting the apple cart. I think primarily because they want um, to the, stay in the side and win and play for their country. But there's an elephant in the room here as well. And the fact that, um, and I'm not referring to any individual here, I've got to stress that, but if an England player speaks up against Eddie Jones and is cast aside, not just to the... Lose caps, lose a chance of winning a World Cup and lose playing for their country, which drives them. They also lose an enormous amount of money. so what you won 't really get, and I was speaking to an England World Cup winner in two thousand and three over um over a few drinks the other day and and they were saying how often they challenged Clive Woodward during the game after the game in the week, before the game, different era, I know, but you, you I just don't know how often that is going on, maybe it's going on behind closed doors. And we're not there, privy to see it, but you don't really get that impression that there is an enormous amount of challenge. But that's 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 all. That's not a new comment when when looking at the Eddie Jones regime. And mm. it was a criticism of the Lancaster era that it was a little bit too collegiate and collaborative, and the assistant coaches had too much sway. And with Eddie Jones, we know quite clearly who is in charge, pretty much of English rugby, and it and it is Eddie Jones. And I don't think that's an uh, you know an, an inappropriate comment on the Otoje thing. Look. There's an argument that Otoje could have been England captain for four years by now, because when Dylan Hartley moved off the scene and done a really good job from 16 to 18, it looked like a Otoje could have been that man to step in because Farrell, you're always going to get a level of leadership. It reminds me of Sexton. It reminds me of Dan Bigger. You're always going to get a level of leadership from these kind of world-class competitors. Do they need to be captain as well? Or do they then have so much focus on them? In the same way, Andy Farrell could have made James Ryan captain, couldn't he? Straight after the World Cup and gone, look, you can have seven eight years in the role if you play your cards right but he didn't he he went with sexton and jones has, has gone with farrell but what but that inward comment is is a funny one because if you look at jones's vice captains um ellis genge luke Cowan-Dickie, and henry slade um all great players but you would never describe henry slade as an extrovert or certainly doesn't give that 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 uh, that image off to to the media and to the fans so Yeah, it's a a tricky one. I struggle with it myself. I completely agree with Rudd. Toje has been that future England captain figure. But for whatever reason, and Jones outlined it in that leadership book, he just doesn't see him as a leader. Whether he will suddenly spring a surprise in six months' time and go, ah, oh, he's, act- he's done his acting classes, now he's a captain. You never know with Eddie Jones. Maybe this is all part of a master plan um, to build Etoje up to that level. But yeah, certainly the fact that Toje is not on the inner sanctum of England leadership does feel a funny one.
0: Well, I think that's all absolutely fine. And if that's Jones's assessment of Atoje's personality, no problem. It's the mm-hmm. detailing it to the, to the world and potentially embarrassing a I wouldn't like to be discussed in those terms. I wouldn't like to be called not a leader and inward-looking, certainly not publicly. And by the way, tell the world I've been sent to acting classes as well. I mean, James Ryan may uh, accept or not accept why he's not captain. I think he would have a legitimate point if Andy Farrell wrote a book about it, though,
2: Rudd. Yeah, and like, far be for me to, to, to be... Um poo-pooing you know access or information or or uh, you know this kind of insight because it's, it's great and even like england you know released a video the other day of of etoje giving the kind of rallying speech in the dressing room after the game so he's clearly reacting well to it and like you know it, this has been going on between eddie jones and etoje throughout eddie jones time he, he used to describe him as a car you know he used to compare it to different types of car when he first came in and you know you know if he was going well he was a ferrari and if he wasn't he was i don't know like he wasn't ever a to, but you know he it was kind of this sliding scale up it was just this kind of mad thing where you like this guy is clearly an iconic or potentially iconic figure in english rugby you know he's he he he, he transcends the game and and is probably the only player in that squad uh, you know correct me if i'm wrong chris but who kind of is more recognizable outside of rugby than anyone else he's represented by rock nation you know he, he is potentially your biggest star and he's been kind of belittled in public by the coach certainly that's the, the, how I would perceive it and it, it seems like a very strange thing to do and maybe he knows his Hoje a lot better than I do and maybe he feels like these are the buttons he needs to push but for me you know I, I the two possibly the two best team performances i've ever seen live are from this english team under eddie jones the the 2019 six nations dismantling of ireland and the 2019 world cup semi-final against new zealand like two of the most complete performances and the man who was at the heartbeat or sorry at the heart of both of those in, in my view was Maro atoje you know in that game against new zealand it was possibly the best individual performance i've ever seen from any player and if I was a coach and I'm not, and, you know, I'm not paid as much as Eddie Jones, but I also am not subject to the scrutiny he's subject to, that's the guy I'd be, I'd be backing and I'd be putting my, all my faith in rather than other people. Chris, in
0: terms of on-the-field approach then, so as I understand it, Manu Tuolagi played at the weekend and they're trying mm-hmm. to get minutes into his legs. So you mentioned the ball carrier problem at Murrayfield. So let's say he comes back. He has a transformative... I think, um, ability for any team. Uh, shoot this down straight away. Is there, is there much talk in English rugby of have we, uh, passed on the Vunapola brothers too quickly here? One's 29, one's 31. I don't know what their form is like. I don't know what their fitness is like. I don't know where they are. But I mean, I know as an Irish fan scarred over the last number of years, if we pitch up and twicken them in a few weeks and there's no Tuolagi and no Vunapolas, I won't be upset.
1: No. No. And look, Rudd mentioned Atoje in terms of those iconic England performances under Jones. And whatever happens, you know, from here on into 2023 with, with Eddie Jones and England, however they do at the next World Cup, they've got that 2019 night in Yokohama where they they basically knocked New Zealand off their perch and kicked them off their throne. And that, that will that'll be remembered by England fans forever. And not just Atoje was instrumental, but both Vinopolis and Tuolangi. And the Vinopolis, I think when it comes to Mako, there's been murmurings for a couple of years now that, in terms of the set piece, he maybe is not the force he was. Marler is such a, an accomplished scrummager that they want him in and around the squad. Genge is a vice captain, so I think Mako, even though you know, there's every chance he can come back in, I, I wonder if you know his magnificent England career might that might be it for him. I, I you know, who knows? Uh, and Billy Vanapola maybe they just feel that he's also reached an age where he's not quite as explosive as he, as he was. But it's less about those individuals. It's more about Jones trying to make a statement about moving on from the Saracens' core, mm. moving away from the Vanapolans, moving away from Jamie George. Um, the irony of that is that Farrell was still captain. So you, so this is where it feels slightly contradictory because on the one hand, he's, he's dropping Saracens' players and saying we've got too much Saracens' leadership and then he has Farrell as captain, albeit with a, a younger and a very different, um, more sort of club-diverse group of vice captains but the Tua thing it's been the you know subplot of English rugby now for 11 years <laughs> since his debut 11 years when Manu's fit all is well in the world you know he gives gain line he holds defenses he allows the skillful players and not that he isn't skillful but he allows the Henry Slades the George Fords the own Farrells to shine get people like Johnny Man, Anthony Watson Elliot Daly on the ball to make hay then he's not there and Farrell plays at 12 and he's been kind of you know he's really done England a magnificent service at 12, but it's always felt like oh it's a stopgap or let's get Tuolangi alongside Farrell with with George Ford or whatever maybe with Marcus Smith now. So what happens when when Tuolangui's fit? He comes straight back in. He's played 20 minutes and he'll he he won't play in Rome. He's not in the squad. I think he'll come off the bench against Wales and he'll start against Ireland, all being well fitness-wise. So he then transforms England. They play beat Ireland. Do whatever happens in Paris. And then what happens if Tuolangi gets injured again, which is possible because of his record? Then do England scrabbling around looking for a midfield again? It's not sustainable for English rugby to be putting all of their eggs in the Tuolangi basket. Mm. Sam Warburton said this the other night on our our Rugby Union Daily pod. He said, how many English qualified centres are there out there? It is insane. He used the word insane to put all of the stall in Tuolangi. But that's the reality because when Tuolangi's fit, they've got a ball, uh, you know, a gain line midfielder. And when he's not fit, they go in with Henry Slade and Elliot Daly in the midfield. Mm. Completely different. So it's a completely different strategy. It's not like yeah. the All Blacks used to do. Mar or Sonny Bill, both can give you gain. That's where it just, you, you feel that it can't just be up to Tuolangi to transform this England England attack.
0: Yes, that's very interesting. Very muddled, all right. OK, well, we'll see how England go in Rome at the weekend. Our rugby coverage here and off the ball is with, thanks to Vodafone, main sponsor of the Irish rugby team. We all belong to the team of us. We're here with Chris Jones and Rory O'Connor. So let's uh, turn towards Paris Saturday evening. We've been congratulating ourselves all week. Chris, you might as well tell us how great we are as well.
1: Well, I, the, the only, the only um, caveat I'd put to, to how good Ireland were was that I think most people saw that coming most people saw Ireland putting Wales to the sword because of how slick Ireland looked in the autumn, the fitness they've got in their squad, and the cohesion, uh, the form of the provinces, and then also the poverty of Wales. So you put that together and it was no surprise to see the game as as one-sided as it was. Um, and I think Ireland looked look the real deal, don't they? But it's a completely different challenge out in Paris. Their three best results under Andy Farrell, England, Uh, New Zealand in the autumn, England last year, New Zealand in the autumn, Wales just now. They've all been in in Dublin. That's not their fault. They've only played in Dublin since the England game. But this is a completely different matter. France in a raucous Stade de France smelling their first championship since 2010. So we're going to learn a lot more about Ireland, aren't we, after this weekend. We know they're a good side, full of good players. They look supremely drilled and well coached. This is another... Matter altogether going over to Paris, I think.
0: Yeah, I would tend to agree. I'm I'm spooked by all the Irish predictions thus far, Rory. I, I would make uh, France uh, clear favourites to win by not much, but clear favourites to win.
2: Three point game in the bookies, Joe. So it's not as like I, I, people usually. That's you know they, that's where you get you find the kind of more sobering read on how the game is going to go. But it was an Irish bookmaker I looked at, so maybe maybe people are putting their money where their mark, mouth is and moving the market, but certainly. Ireland have what it takes to go there and win, but you would have certain reservations about the kind of, you know, the the French power game across 80 minutes. And you go back to leinster La Rochelle, you know, we, we have to start bringing Leinster games into this because Leinster provide the bulk of the squad. And the way La Rochelle beat Leinster in that Heininger uh, Champions Cup semi final, um, Shows a little bit of the way for France, especially because Weenie Antonio will play a tight head prop and they will have the capacity to match Ireland's tight five power and then some. And then after 50 minutes, they'll bring on a like for like replacement in each position and ramp things up. I would expect Ian Henderson to go back into the match day 23. Perhaps he comes onto the bench along with, you know, and comes off the bench with uh, Finley Beelam to kind of provide a bit of ballast to Finley Beelam. But this is nothing on. You know, Finley Beelam's a fine player. He's done very well for Ireland, but we have never seen him go to this level. And that is the big question. Does Tyke Furlong come off after 50, 60 minutes when he's spent? And it, are you bringing on a player who can close out a game away from home in Paris? Not to put everything on one man, but if if Finley Beelam closes that game out, then he has answered pretty much every question about his role in this squad and has cemented his place in, in the pecking order. He's slightly smaller than the other foot rows that are available. He's He's a lovely player, but he's not as explosive um, it's a lot of pressure for him coming into this arena, and he will be he he will face a test unlike any other that he's that he's had um, across his career because that's where France will go after Ireland. They'll look to lock down that tight five. They'll look to tire out the props. They'll they'll look to make sure that they they are dead on their feet when they're trying to make those passes. It's all well and good making that pass when you're when when you're feeling fresh, but if you've been locked into scrums and it's been taken out of your legs, then things get much tougher. France will will try and maul Ireland off the park. They'll try and. Um, like they've got all the out the back capabilities as well, but they have like a tractor lock in Paul Vilemsa, who's I, I can't remember exactly what weight I think 134 kilos, I could be wrong. And Antonio the heaviest player in the tournament, and they've got him fit and they're both fit, so that like they will they will cause Ireland no end of problems. So that's where that's where the game will be won and lost, and that's where Ireland haven't been asked the questions because New Zealand came to Dublin with possibly their least skillful front row, you know, of the last 10 15 years. Wales don't really have that in their armor and it was less of a factor in in the england game last last uh you know last six nations because porter hadn't switched across but ireland's game is so based around those players being able to do what they do and every forward being able a a viable option and a carrier and a passing threat as well that if ireland gets sucked into a real battle and those forwards are are tired what happens then or if they don't win the game line what happens what happens then we don't know yet we haven't seen it in the last since probably Twickenham in, in uh, or maybe it's the France game last year was the last time Ireland property got beaten up. But uh, it's it's been a while. And, and that's the test for this team now that they're on a crest of a wave, nine unbeaten, but seven, the last seven of those have all been at home. This is a very different challenge. And it's a, it's a, it's a great position to be in to go and see if they've made those improvements to that, that degree.
0: And that's the kind of sobering negative slant that makes me feel more comfortable, I have to say, Chris. <laughs> uh, how do you yeah. see that battle up front then?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's, It's in France's hands. And and that's only because of the example, you know, Rudd cites those examples of Leinster being beaten up by La Rochelle, uh, you know, England getting the better of Ireland a few times at Twickenham through 2020. This is a different Ireland side. They're playing with more dynamism. They're not sending runners out to be lambs to the slaughter to an oppressive defence. But fascinating, isn't it? Sean Edwards, you know, my cat, uh, coaching the Ireland defence. Sean Edwards, um, mastermind in the French defence. I do wonder whether, you know, Sean Edwards just... He constantly, I think, he's got such motivation to to take this French side to real heights. This French to real heights. He's obviously coached so much for Wales in the Six Nations, gone up against all these different coaches. But I think with France, he feels that he could have such a transformational impact on French rugby because, you know, with all the great work that other coaches are doing, and Laurent Beat with the backs, and <clears throat> Ibanez and Galtier. Edwards is the guy who's come from outside in and he's he, he's the example of the French bucking the trend rather than go for the all French coaching team. They've actually gone, right, we're going to we're going to get some external influence. And he's no doubt been a part of the way they look more drilled. They look fitter. So they are they are ominous. We we don't quite know yet mentally if the French can can still be exploited. We saw their complete um Brain explosion in Paris against Scotland where I think Bruce Doolan kind of thought he needed to keep playing almost for some kind of you know, Gallic pride when in reality he walks that out and France win the game and mm. then Scotland don't go to Paris and win and, and you know, could, things could have been so so different for the table and even for Scotland players getting on that Lions tour but that's an, an, another one altogether. I'm just so excited for the game. I'm going out to, to, to Paris first thing Friday. So it's our big commentary on BBC Radio this weekend, which is sort of trumping the other two, which just says, says how much these two are looking like, that the two form horses in the Six Nations. And you've got to say, whoever wins this will be a really tough team to stop winning the whole thing.
0: Yeah, well, with all genuine respect to the Scots, this feels like the Grand Slam Eliminator game. And, you know, it's, it's compelling for so many reasons. Are there any whispers, Rory, on Henshaw coming back in at this stage of the week?
2: I think he'll be in the 23. I don't know at this stage whether he'll be uh, in the 12 jersey or whether they'll leave Bunyaki in and, and bring Henshaw on to supplant. I, I, I think one of them will be in the 23 jersey, one of them will be in the 12 jersey. They'll both be involved. It's just a matter of, of, of who gets the not. Very hard to take Bunyaki out of the equation. I know Brian made a a, a good kind of case for it last night. Um, very hard to change that team after last week. Um, but I Are injury issues just in case that they pull up after 15 minutes and you can trust the other guy to go on for 65 and, and be okay? It, maybe that's what you do. I'm, I'm not sure. So no, it's a bit it's a bit early yet, but um, I would definitely expect them both to be in. I think you know, Chalk comes in for Hume, and I would expect Henderson to come in for Burn. Just a better, sorry, not for Burn for uh, Ryan Baird. Just a matter of whether they come straight into the team or or onto the bench.
0: Okay, uh, Chris. Before you go, quick word on the Scots. I know you're at Murrayfield for uh-huh. Five Live, obviously, yep. and, and, and they go to. Cardiff. So as as yep. poor and lamentable as Wales were at the weekend, and as predictable as that was, off the back of a defeat and at Cardiff, is still going to yep. offer up something. So um, look, I, I don't think many of us are fully convinced of the Scots just yet. So what did you see and what do you think?
1: I was really impressed. Uh, I think um, it was another step forward for Scotland. I think they took a big step back against South Africa because there are a few component parts of their game that went to pot, you know, aerially, uh, scrum, uh, killed at the breakdown, kicking battle, all those kind of test match rugby, you know, non-negotiables. They failed against against South Africa, so I thought, actually, is this Scotland side going to take that that next step and be proper title contenders? But I really like the way they. Um, you know, scored from deep against England and soaked up a lot of English pressure, met England physically on the game line in defence. Steve Tandy's got them one of the best defensive records. That That's indisputable. Um, and I think they showed uh, both creativity and composure in that final 20 minutes. So I am a big fan of this Scotland side. And I, I like the way that, you know, being challenged to keep up their strong record against England, being challenged to take the scalp of an England team that were heading up with a sort of a cobbled together lineup that raised so many eyebrows with key players missing, but also some strange selections. It was in Scotland's hands. and I think if Scotland had lost, a lot of questions will be, will be being asked. But they didn't. They won. And they need massive credit for that, especially when seven points down at home with Murrayfield going quiet. You're right. Ireland at home, uh, Ireland away, Sco- uh, and and Scotland at home are completely different matches for Wales. They're, and that's with respect to Scotland. But this is going to be a smarting Wales side that have heard all the chat about crisis at Welsh rugby, you know, complete existential issues that they need to resolve. What's the future of the game in the principality? They're, but they'll also know that give them seventy odd thousand, give them hymns and areas. And give them you know a a little bit of a a chance to get the crowd involved and they will they will take it i'm gonna back scotland i just am worried that there's that wales actually are struggling to see where wales are gonna are gonna win this game which is is a difficult one given to say given that wales haven't lost in cardiff in 20 years against scotland but i just think this is a, a disciplined scotland side it's an organized scotland side i think finn russell is playing fly half in four or five different ways these days i wonder if they'll bring cam redpath in now he's got some more rugby for bath and try and put Wales to the sword and exploit their their backline defence. So, another fascinating game. I mm. think the games on Saturday are just are compelling. Can't wait for either.
0: Yeah. So look, clock against me, Chris. Who wins in Paris?
1: Uh, France in Paris and and Scotland in Cardiff.
0: Okay, Rod. Final word to
1: you. You don't have to. You don't have to give me to me in a line.
0: Who's going to win in, in Paris?
2: I tipped Ireland at the start of the tournament, so I kind of have to stick with them. Um, I'll. Although I've laid out a lot of kind of reasons why I'm getting more doubtful as the fixture approaches, but if Ireland are able to win that canine battle in the in the in the tie five exchanges and hold their own there for eighty minutes, then they have the the capabilities to take this frame. Friend- team to a place they haven't been and play at a pace with the breakdown and the quick ball that they're able to, um, to bring to cause them all sorts of problems and with the injury profile the form the confidence I think they can just about do it but it wouldn't surprise me at the same time if, if it all fell apart and, and France were able to overpower them uh, and I, I agree with Chris I think Scotland will beat Wales
0: OK very good uh, Rory O'Connor of the Irish Independent and Chris Jones Chris just to let
1: you know he's at Rory OC I'm at Malloy Joe <laughs> just think about it you might be on my you might be on my rugby list who knows (laughs) well indeed secret list Uh, keep (laughs) up the good work on on the uh, rugby pod thanks Emil Uh, thanks loads for having me again Cheers. cheers cheers lads cheers guys